This is the Daily Signal podcast for Wednesday, September 15th. I'm Kate Trinko. And I'm Doug Blair. On today's episode, Virginia Allen speaks with heritage legal expert John Malcolm about President Joe Biden's vaccine mandate. They discuss whether it's constitutional, what legal challenges it will face, and the role the Supreme Court will likely play. And don't forget, if you enjoy this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, and please encourage others to subscribe. And now, on to today's top news. Arizona Attorney General Mark Burnovich announced in a clip posted to Twitter on Tuesday that he had filed a lawsuit against the Biden administration in response to proposed vaccine mandates. Here's Burnovich via Twitter. This is Arizona Attorney General Mark Burnovich. We have filed a lawsuit today against the unprecedented and unconstitutional power grab by the Biden administration and the federal government. The Biden administration is unconstitutionally trying to mandate vaccines that may affect hundreds of millions of Americans. It's not only wrong, it's unconstitutional. And as we've done on the border crisis, as we push back against federal overreach and their tax and spend policies, we will continue to hold the Biden administration accountable and try to stop this federal overreach because we need to protect not only Arizona, but the entire United States. Bernovich's lawsuit is the first targeting the administration over the controversial mandates. The president's mandate, if implemented, would require federal employees and private businesses with more than 100 employees to get vaccinated or to take a weekly COVID test. Republicans quickly criticized the order as unconstitutional. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken appeared before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee Tuesday, facing questions about America's withdrawal from Afghanistan. Senator Bob Menendez, Democrat of New Jersey and chair of the committee, noted that Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin had refused to appear via the Hill. Second, I'm very disappointed that Secretary Austin declined our request to testify today. A full accounting of the U.S. response to this crisis is not complete without the Pentagon, especially when it comes to understanding the complete collapse of the U.S. trained and funded Afghan military. His decision not to appear before the committee will affect my personal judgment on Department of Defense nominees. I expect the secretary will avail himself to the committee in the near future. And if he does not, I may consider the use of committee subpoena power to compel him and others over the course of these last 20 years to testify. Senator John Bassaro, Republican of Wyoming, asked Blinken about how refugees were vetted via C-SPAN. So, so what percentage of the Afghan population that left Afghanistan as part of our U.S. evacuation uh, efforts, what percentage of those were vetted before they actually got on the airplanes? Uh, before they got on the airplanes yeah. uh, to leave Kabul? Uh, certainly not. Most of them were not. That's exactly why we established transit points in countries through negotiations with those countries to make sure that before anyone came to the United States, uh, they would be uh, vetted by uh, the different law enforcement and security agencies. So we established agreements uh, with uh, well more than a dozen countries. So, so who were you letting on the planes? Anybody that showed up? Well, initially, uh, as you know, there were uh, people who managed to flood the airport. Uh, we had to do an uh, immediate assessment of those. We had to make sure we could clear people out of the airport so that the flights could come in, go out. But no one uh, came to the United States uh, without being checked somewhere else first to make sure that they don't pose a security threat. Senator Ted Cruz, Republican of Texas, compared President Joe Biden to former President Jimmy Carter. President Biden and the Biden administration have presided over the worst foreign policy catastrophe 
in a generation. Americans across the nation are horrified. Our servicemen and women, our active duty military are angry, they're disillusioned, and they're frustrated. Our enemies across the globe are emboldened, which makes the world more dangerous today for America and our allies are dispirited. Ever since the disaster began unfolding in Afghanistan, we've seen the Biden administration making political excuses. We've seen Democrats on this committee explaining at great length how everything that happened in Afghanistan is Trump's fault. It's all Trump's fault. Mr. Secretary, Joe Biden is the President of the United States. Kamala Harris is the Vice President of the United States. You are the United States Secretary of State. Just like Jimmy Carter owns the disaster of the Iran hostage crisis, you own this. On Tuesday, Senate Democrats unveiled the Freedom to Vote Act, another attempt by the party to institute changes to federal election law in response to new state laws in Texas and Florida aimed at election integrity. The bill was introduced by Senator Amy Klobuchar, Democrat from Minnesota, and builds on proposals made by West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, as well as the For the People Act. The bill's co-sponsors currently include Senators Raphael Warnock of Georgia, John Tester of Montana, Tim Kaine of Virginia, Jeff Merkley of Oregon, and Alex Padilla of California, along with Maine Independent Senator Angus King. Senator Manchin has also signed on as a co-sponsor. The Freedom to Vote Act includes provisions from the For the People Act, including making Election Day a public holiday and banning partisan gerrymandering, along with voter ID requirements requested by Senator Manchin. Republicans have argued that bills like the Freedom to Vote Act and the For the People Act are examples of federal government overreach into elections. On Monday night, protesters went to the Maryland home of Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Via the Daily Caller's Jorge Ventura, here's a snippet from that protest. According to The Hill, the protest was organized by Shutdown D.C. The Hill also reported that Judiciary Committee Chair Senator Dick Durbin, Democrat of Illinois, said Tuesday during a hearing, Politics ain't beanbag. We all know that you have to have a tough mental hide to be in this business. And, but, it's absolutely unacceptable, from my point of view, to involve any major public figure's family or their home. Senator Chuck Grassley, Republican of Iowa, also addressed the protest, saying, This protest looks like another blatant attempt to intimidate the judiciary and anyone who disagrees with a radical agenda pushed by partisan advocates. Now stay tuned for Virginia's conversation with John Malcolm as they discuss President Biden's vaccine mandates. The Heritage Foundation has a new website to combat critical race theory. CRT, as it's known, makes race the centerpiece of all aspects of American life. It categorizes individuals into groups of oppressors and victims. The idea is infiltrating everything from our politics and education to the workplace and even our military. Heritage has pulled together the resources that you need to identify CRT in your community and the ways to fight it. We also have a legislation tracker so you can see what's happening in your state. Visit heritage.org CRT to learn more.
Last week, President Joe Biden announced that all government workers and contractors are now required to be vaccinated. Biden also announced that he is directing the Department of Labor to write a rule that will require all businesses with 100 employees or more to either have all their staff vaccinated or tested weekly. As Biden completed his speech last Wednesday and walked out of the room, a reporter called after him asking, is this constitutional? And here with us to answer that question is Heritage Foundation's senior legal fellow, John Malcolm. John is also the vice president of the Institute for Constitutional Government at the Heritage Foundation. John, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Great to be with you. So Biden has essentially told about 100 million Americans that they have to choose either between their job, being vaccinated, or tested weekly. Is the president's vaccine mandate constitutional, John? All right. Well, you actually, there's a question of whether it's constitutional And even if it could be done under the Constitution, whether he can do it under existing authorities. Mm. And there's a difference between the two. If something is unconstitutional, the federal government just can't do it. If it is constitutional, but the statutory authority doesn't exist, then conceivably Congress could come in and pass a law giving the president the authority to do these. So they're separate questions. Uh, There are constitutional arguments that can be made here. I'm not sure how great uh, any of them are. So three come to mind. One is you could argue with respect to the private employers that it violates equal protection to do it this way because there's no rational distinction between companies with 100 or more employees and companies with fewer than 100 employees. And making a law that hinges on that distinction is, uh, violates equal protection. You know, private businesses are not a protected class. I assume that the government could come up with some reasons that would pass. It's called the rational basis test. It really could, might as well be called the laugh test uh, as to, you know, why it makes sense to regulate businesses with 100 or more employees. So I'm not sure that's the strongest argument. You could make an argument that this violates due process, uh, that, uh, you know, the government is forcing people to either lose their jobs or have an invasive medical procedure by having this vaccine or another invasive procedure by undergoing uh, testing. Actually, you know, there's some uh, support for that. I guess you could find in cases like Roe versus Wade that have a right uh, to privacy. Uh, But, you know, there is some Supreme Court precedent allowing governmental authorities, usually state governmental authorities, to, in the middle of a pandemic, force people to undergo vaccines or suffer a penalty of some kind. Uh, And there's never the Supreme Court, not since the New Deal, at least, uh, has not said that your right to a job is a due process right that is protected by the Constitution. Uh, They could also argue that this exceeds The statute uh, that uh, enables OSHA to do what it does uh, is that this doesn't involve interstate commerce in some way and that Congress can't regulate uh, this. Uh, After all, they couldn't force uh, you to get a vaccine – to buy insurance. So if they can't force you to buy insurance, maybe they can't force you to have a vaccine. But the Supreme Court has given a very, very broad interpretation. Uh, in the past as to what Congress's authority is under the interstate commerce uh, clause. So I'm not sure that that's going to be a particularly 
strong argument. The stronger arguments, it seems to me, are more statutory in nature. And what do you explain what you mean by the statutory arguments? What do so you mean by statutory? You have the threshold question about whether Congress has the constitutional authority to pass a statute. That's the constitutional question. Okay. If you pass that threshold and you determine that con Congress has the constitutional authority to pass a statute, then it's a question of did they pass a statute and what does that statute say? Uh, and there are at least a couple of statutes that are implicated here. Uh, one is a, a, an act that applies to all government actions called the Administrative Procedures Act. If a government uh, – if an executive branch is going to make a change in an administrative agency, they have to follow certain procedures and their, their actions cannot be arbitrary and capricious. They have to be grounded in fact or science or something, uh, something like that. So one could make an argument that you know, making these distinctions between employers with more than 100, 100 or more people and, and fewer, that that is just an arbitrary and, and capricious mm -hmm. um, uh, basis on which to make uh, a rule. So you can make that argument. The stronger argument, it seems to me, is whether OSHA, the Occupational Safe and Health uh, and, and you know, safety and health or, um, organization, uh, whether OSHA has the statutory authority, whether it's been given the statutory authority to issue a rule of this type. So you mentioned before about government employees and government contractors. I, I would separate those. Okay. I, I think it's pretty clear that the federal government can require a federal employee as a condition of employment to get this vaccine or be subjected to testing. And government contractors, they may be able to assert some of these constitutional arguments, but you know, there's this authority out there that the federal government can impose conditions on entities or groups that contract with the government uh, that are looking to get federal funds. Mm. So that group will have a weaker set of arguments. With respect to the private employers, uh, you know, you have to look at what the OSHA Act says. So OSHA is not going to go through the rather lengthy notice and comment period that takes place under the Administrative Procedures Act. They want to get these rules out quickly. So they're relying on the authority that gives them the right to promulgate what's referred to as emergency temporary standards. And the statute says that in order to uh, issue emergency temporary standards, they have to show three things. One, that workers are being exposed to a grave danger. So there's a question about whether this pandemic constitutes a grave danger, particularly because a number of the employees may already have been vaccinated or may already have had COVID and built up a natural immunity. That the provision, whatever it is that the OSHA promulgates, will address that danger. And thirdly, that the rule is feasible for employers to, to enforce it. So if you pass that threshold that allows OSHA to issue emergency standards, then uh, you, there's an additional condition. And, and here's where it will get complicated. I'll make one broad point. Courts are very skeptical of agencies exercising broad emergency powers because courts are very aware of the fact that agencies can abuse that power yeah. uh, and to issue very, very broad mandates beyond anything that Congress ever envisioned. And so far as I am aware, OSHA has never 
done something like requiring 80 million people to be vaccinated or undergo weekly testing. So courts are already going to approach OSHA's authority with a little bit of skepticism in the same way that the courts approached the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's authority to enact a nationwide moratorium on evictions. And, and that has now been struck down. But OSHA does have broader authority. I mean, you know, no one ever envisioned that the CDC was going to be involved in landlord-tenant relations. Yeah. Everybody knows that OSHA is involved to regulate workplace hazards. So OSHA's authority, uh, they basically have to find – they have to find a couple of things. One, that employees are exposed to grave danger from exposure to substances or agents determined to be toxic or physically harmful or from new hazards and that such emergency standard is necessary to protect employees from danger. Hmm. Now, that opens up a whole host of questions. In some ways, it seems a, a little broad even still. It is very broad. There's no question about it. Yeah. But again, this is a pretty draconian mandate that's being imposed. You've got to ask yourself, is COVID uh, a grave danger? Again, you may have a lot of employees who have, in fact, been vaccinated or who may have developed a natural immunity from having had COVID already. Uh, is this a new hazard? It's clearly not toxic, mm -hmm. right? Uh, it's not a toxic agent. Is this a new – is it an agent? First of all, it's not a substance. Is it an agent? Is a virus an agent? If so – is it a new hazard? Does it fit into that category? And then if you show all of that, is the emergency standard necessary? Could you have, for instance, periodic testing or have people work remotely? Is it necessary to force people to undergo this draconian measure uh, in order to protect employees? Those are all questions that are going to be raised in the myriad of lawsuits that are going to be filed the moment this rule is promulgated, and we'll see how the courts deal with them. And do you think, like you say, it's almost guaranteed we're going to see lawsuits. Do you foresee this rising all the way to the Supreme Court for those questions that you raised to ultimately be answered by the high court? It's a, look, it's a definite possibility. Again, the government, so far as I'm aware, has never done anything like this before. Uh, and if you end up getting lawsuits in, in a variety of different districts, you will conceivably have courts coming out with different rulings on these issues. And when you're attempting to do something nationwide and you have one court in, I don't know, New York saying that it's okay and another court in Ohio saying it's not okay and then another court in Texas coming out, you know, saying, well, maybe under these circumstances, not under those circumstances, at some point you need some clarity. And ultimately, uh, since there are a number of different circuits, the only court that can issue – that can give that kind of clarity is the Supreme Court. Or Congress. Congress could step in and say, let's pass a statute that makes clear what OSHA can or can't do. Uh, but I don't think Congress is going to act uh, that quickly. And so it's, it's quite possible that this case will bubble up to the Supreme Court and bubble up pretty quickly. And as those legal battles uh, ensue and people are filing lawsuits, would that pause the order in any way? Like if, if one specific business sues and says, we're not doing this, would that mean while their lawsuit proceeds, they don't have to enforce the rule? Would that affect enforcement of the rule you know, in the state, across the country, as things are tied up in the courts? Nope. Not no. unless a court issues an injunction. If there is a court that issues an injunction and says to OSHA and says to you know, the, the Biden administration, 
you cannot impose this mandate, and first of all, that would be probably the quickest way to get this up to the Supreme Court if a court issued an injunction, particularly if they issued a nationwide injunction and attempted to enjoin the Biden administration from doing this anywhere. Uh, but unless and until a court says, Biden administration, you can't do this, employers are that choose to ignore the mandate uh, are taking a risk. So OSHA is enforcing it. They are under the Department of Labor. Yep. How how practically do you go about, you know, for thousands of employers across the country that have more than 100 employees, how would OSHA practically enforce this? Well, they may bring other federal agents, maybe deputized to go work for OSHA. So that might increase the number of agents uh, that are involved in, uh, in looking at this. I mean, they couldn't enforce this law 100% any more than we can enforce any other law that we had do 100%. I mean, we have a lot of traffic cops out there. I assure you that there are people who violate traffic laws and engage in jaywalking and they aren't caught. What happens though is they, they would be you know, agents who are allowed to come into your business because they're regulating uh, you know, your safety conditions. They probably don't need to get a warrant in order to do that. They just show up and say, you're letting us in now. Uh, and if you are caught violating that rule, the penalties can be quite draconian. I'm not sure what they are, but they're, I'm quite sure that they will be ten thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars per person uh, violating that mandate. So as is the, anybody who chooses to engage in a civil infraction or a crime, uh, they can do it and the odds are decent that they will get away with it. But if they get caught, the penalties can be pretty, pretty bad. Mm -hmm. So, you know, businesses are going to have to decide for themselves whether they're willing to take that chance of violating this mandate uh, and possibly being bankrupted by the fines that are imposed. Mm -hmm. I know you say we're in a bit of uncharted territory. We haven't exactly seen something like this before, this uh, very totalitarian overreach use of, of government power and authority. Um, but and of course, we actually haven't seen the rule yet. The Department of Labor right. hasn't released it. The president has just directed them to write it. Do we know if this will apply to nonprofit organizations and for-profit organizations the same or would there be any difference there? I don't know. I can't think why they would treat them differently. Uh, I mean, they treat nonprofits differently because of their mission uh, and whether or not they get a tax exempt status. Uh, but an employee working at a nonprofit is just as susceptible to having COVID-19 <laughs> as somebody working at a for-profit entity. So I, I, that really would strike me as being an irrational distinction to make. Working at a nonprofit, I might hope that they would do it, but I can't yeah. imagine that they will do it. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about the Supreme Court. So you say it's possible that we might see this go all the way up. If it does, how likely do you think it is uh, that the justices will declare this rule unconstitutional? Well, again, I, I sort of went through the constitutional arguments. There are a lot of clever lawyers out there, so they may think of some that I haven't enumerated. Uh, I think that those are questionable at best. I think the statutory arguments yeah. are, are more likely. And I will also say that a, a judge and particularly Supreme Court justices – would probably be more, be more willing to say, look, we're not saying you can't do this under the Constitution. What we are saying is 
Congress hasn't given you that authority. If Congress wants to go back and give you that authority, they can and then we can consider the constitutional argument. But if they can avoid making a constitutional argument and rule on statutory grounds, you know, I think they will feel more comfortable. If on the other hand, they believe that the Occupational Safety and Hazard Act does give OSHA this authority, then they will have to face whether or not that act is at least as applied in this situation constitutional or not. And any sense on how quickly this could progress? I mean, would we see this rise faster maybe to the Supreme Court or, or the Supreme Court uh, choose to hear this case sooner since it is a somewhat time sensitive issue? Of course, usually when the high court accepts the case, you know, it's a year or more before they actually hear those arguments. So uh, and then make a ruling. What do you think we'd be looking at for a timeline here? Well, because of this pandemic, we've been seeing at least on pandemic-related issues, the court's been ruling kind of quickly under what's known as its shadow docket. So they've been ruling on the basis of some briefs without even the benefit of oral arguments. So we just saw that uh, when they struck down the CDC's attempt to extend the eviction moratorium. Again, we've seen this with respect to uh, governors issuing mandates saying the church services can't be held if there are over a certain number of, of parishioners showing up uh, at churches. You know, those cases have bubbled up very, very quickly. Uh, so again, if the, a lawsuit is filed and you end up getting one or, or two or three courts uh, saying that the government can't do this and entering nationwide injunctions, uh, my guess is, is this will be on a fast track to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court's been out of session, but it's coming back into session in a couple of weeks, first week in October. Uh, so my guess is, is that you would get a lower court ruling. You would get expedited consideration by a court of appeals. And then quite possibly the Supreme Court would say, all right, we're going to either allow this thing to go into effect or not allow this thing to go into effect, but it's going to be on a fast track. We're going to require briefings and have a oral argument and promise to issue an opinion expeditiously. So if it's going to go to the Supreme Court, it can get there quickly, particularly if the lower courts tell the Biden administration that they cannot do this. How optimistic are you that uh, that ultimately we'll see a decision made that no, this this rule can't be implemented at least in this way? You know, maybe that it needs to be changed somehow, um, but that we can't force that the government can't force businesses to private businesses to tell their employees you either have to be vaccinated or tested weekly. I won't say whether I'm optimistic or pessimistic, other than to say I think it's a it's, this is not a slam dunk either way. I, I think that this is a close question and a lot of it's going to involve, you know, did Congress envision that OSHA could or should be able to do something like this? Uh, and I think – look, I just read this, the standards from the statute. Uh, I think it could go – Either way, they might say, you know, yes, to the extent to which workers are there, this is an occupational and safety hazard and OSHA exists in order to prevent occupational and safety hazards and Congress gave them very broad authority. They may regret having given them that authority but that's the authority that they gave them and unless they trim that back, they can do it or they might say coming out the other way, which is – I think also quite plausible to say Congress never envisioned giving them this kind of authority. We're not talking about whether or not the wiring system is safe or whether there's a asbestos uh, in the um, 
you know, in the air conditioners. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is something broader than that that actually involves a physically invasive procedure on employees, not the business uh, itself, uh, and that Congress did not give them that authority. And if they want to, they're going to have to be a lot clearer about it. Okay, Congress, go back and fix this if you want to. And in the meantime, Department of Labor, you can't do this. John, thank you so much for your time today. John Malcolm, a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation, we really appreciate you joining us. It was my pleasure. Anytime. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. You can find the Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, and please encourage others to subscribe. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Virginia Allen and Kate Trinko. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, please visit DailySignal.com.